church, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. It's interesting. Um, it's not interesting, it's providential. Something we're going to be talking about this morning is Christ's call for radical obedience, radical um, discipleship. And Sometimes that can be seen in when what John alluded to earlier, this need to do everything all the time. Um, and if you don't do that, then you are less than. And so, again, the, the most applicable example that we would say is, well, we opened this morning, and so if you're not here, what's wrong? Well, that's not the case. We have to remember, oftentimes, Scripture is descriptive and not prescriptive. So that is to say that not every one of us is called to do what Samson did. I don't think any of us is called to do what Samson did, but certainly there are things that are prescriptive about being obedient that we learn from the life of Samson. There are things that the Apostle Paul did that we are to emulate and things that the Apostle Paul did that we are not to emulate. Same with the Apostle Peter. And we see how they actually had a disagreement. So if we were to take all of Scripture as prescriptive, so that is to say, someone in the Bible did it, God told someone in the Bible to do it, and we were to try to line all of those things up, we would find inconsistency. We would find contradiction. But we have to understand that what everyone does in Scripture, what all of the figures and the characters in the Bible stories do, aren't meant to be necessarily emulated because there are specific commands for certain people at certain times, and we have to also remember that the Bible records certain things that are not good. We only have to go as far back as the kings of Israel and Judah to understand that not everything that we see someone doing is something to be emulated. And so all of that to say and to reinforce what John said earlier is that even though here we're going to read about some remarkable things that were asked of the disciples, doesn't mean that we have to now go home and change the way we do things. We have to change the way we think about things, which may change the way that we do things, but it isn't a one-to-one -one kind of lesson. And so we'll get to that momentarily, but I think it does bear mentioning in light of the fact that we um, are out in the snow and, uh, and how we need to keep in mind that this is not the litmus test for spirituality, uh, nor it is, is it necessarily uh, what uh, uh, is going to happen every time. But it's where we are, and it's providentially where the Lord has put us. That All that said, let's go to Scripture. Mark chapter 6, let's look at verse 7. It says, And he, he Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, and was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey, except a staff only, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And was saying to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we've already spoken of and sung of your spirit and his ministry this morning. We ask that his presence and his ministry illuminates his word for our, your word for us today. And we ask this in the name of your son. Amen. 
packing for a trip. This may be a source of joy for you because it allows you to take your organizational skills and put them to the true test, getting everything you need into a small package and making sure that fits into TSA requirements or making sure that it fits in the back of the minivan with the other five pieces of furniture that you're bringing. This is a test of personal fortitude. It is a test of marital communication, and it may be a test of the construction of the bag that you purchased on sale at Walmart. But packing is always a, a source of thought. You may think, I'm going to do it well, or you're going to think, if I ball this up, it's going to get there eventually. But what we encounter here is Jesus giving his apostles a packing list. And this is certainly not the purpose of this text, because as I mentioned earlier, this is not the, the outline or the guide for how ministry ought to take place. For example, it says you're not supposed to wear two tunics. Looking around this room, I see plenty of people who are wearing more than one layer. Some of you may be wearing three or four, and that's completely reasonable. So does that mean that we are forsaking the provision of God by wearing sweaters on top of our t-shirts? No, it certainly doesn't. But in this, we see something that God is doing, not in just what the disciples wear, but what the disciples bring as he sends them out to do ministry. So this is the first thing that we, we see. So look again, verse 7, it says, And he, Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. So the apostles are to pack lightly. The apostles are to pack lightly, but think about what they are given. Think, it's not about what they don't have, it's about what they do have. And going back to the example earlier, sometimes when we pack, sometimes when we bring things, sometimes when we prepare, we often think about what we don't have. Our current building would be a good example of that. It's not particularly warm in here right now. And generally speaking, on most winter mornings, it's not particularly warm in here. At the same time, that's focusing on what we don't have, heat, right? But what do we have? We have comfortable chairs. We didn't have comfortable chairs a matter of months ago, but now we have comfortable chairs. We have a sound system that works exceptionally well. We haven't always had a sound system that works exceptionally well. We have people who are willing to bring countless cookies and brownies and things like that. We are, we are filled with blessings. It's human nature to say, I wish I could bring one more thing. I wish I could have one more thing. And some of them are reasonable. It would be nice if it was three or four degrees warmer in here, but that's just something that we can anticipate and pray for. But we need to remember that it is not necessarily the best thing to do if we're living a life of gratitude, if we're living a life of thankfulness, to focus on the one thing we don't have, the one thing that wasn't under the tree on Christmas morning, the one thing that isn't in the building this morning, but to focus on all the things that we do have. And so as we come to this text... We look at the things that, the, that even though Jesus has the apostles pack lightly, the things that he does tell them to bring and the way that he does tell them to carry themselves is the thing that we ought to focus on. So look at what it says in verse 7. He summons the twelve, begins to send them out in pairs, and he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. The first thing that he gives them is each other. 
He sends them out in pairs. Now, would they have been more effective? Would they have covered more ground? Could they have touched more cities? Could they have touched more people? Could they have cast out more demons? Could they have healed more sick people had they gone out in 12 directions as opposed to in six directions? Absolutely. I mean, geographically, mathematically, that is true. But Jesus sent them out in pairs. Why did he do this? Why did he decide to go for quality over quantity. There are so many things that we could talk about when it comes to this issue. But really what it boils down to is the the value of there being the plurality of believers in ministry together. The idea of the lone wolf Christian is not necessarily something that you see in the Bible. As it relates to church, certainly, but as it relates to ministry also. I mean, there's a pattern of help. There's a pattern of plurality all the way back in the beginning. You only have to think about Adam and Eve to see that God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And in a, in a, in nine, or excuse me, a 24-7, seven days a week, 365-day perspective, it's good for us to have companionship. He gave children parents. He gave us the church. We are to have a plurality of people. It's important that there's a plurality of elders. It's important that there is accountability within the body. And so there is the the value of having the apostles go together, but they're able to help each other. They're going to be actually doing work. This isn't simply them going out and praying. This is them doing work that includes praying, that includes evangelism, that includes traveling. They are to be a help to each other. There's going to be companionship. This is an underappreciated aspect of ministry. The fact that there ought to be a brotherhood, a, 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 um, from a familial bond that forms so that it's not simply a, a rigid ministry schedule, but it's something that lifts all aspects of your soul and spirit as you minister to one another. I am so grateful for John and Joe and David as an elder board that it's not just a rigid agenda which we go through but there's laughs and there's coffee and there's tears and there's accountability within that group. It is how we are meant to operate. And so God gave, Christ gave his apostles that gift of going together. You do have to wonder who got stuck with Judas and how miserable that trip was, but the Bible doesn't say. They're they're, they're pairing off, you know, and they're just like, oh no, not that guy. Anyway, but they, they powered through. All right, so that's the first thing that he gives them, and it can't be discounted. The second thing is he gives them authority. He gives them the authority over the unclean spirit. Now, we'll talk a bit more about this as we get back to the end and what they, what they do, but Jesus is able to give them authority because Jesus possesses authority. That's, some, that's one of the themes of the Gospel of Mark, is how Christ has authority over the physical world, Christ has authority over the spiritual world, both as it relates to demonic entities and our sins and the status of our souls, but he also has authority over our bodies. And so that authority that Christ has, he gives the apostles. Does he give it to them in fullness? We, we see later on in the Gospel of Mark, and certainly as we move into Acts, that, he does, that the apostles and the church do not receive that in fullness. They don't wield the full authority of Christ. But something that we do see that is for the apostles in this short, short account in Mark chapter 6, but certainly moving through the rest of the Gospels and into Acts and the rest of the New Testament, is they do possess a significant amount of authority. 
And moving further, we see that the church still wields authority today. The keys of the kingdom have been given to the church. They are Christ's, but he gives them to us. So they have authority. And really, it's interesting, if we begin to think about how little they take with them, but we and, and we'll talk about those things here. We'll go through the packing list. This is worth talking about today. We, if we think about that, but we think of that in the context of them having the authority of Christ, then it doesn't really matter what they have or what they don't have. If they have the authority of Jesus, but they only have a few material possessions that they go, that they go with, that's enough. That's, submission, that's sufficient. That's significant. What they are taking with them is now becoming holy, now is becoming magnified, now is becoming more than what it was, and actually takes on meaning beyond a few material possessions. The authority of Christ does that. And to circle back and to make this very personal, the authority that Christ gives his church, a church that is operating under biblical principles, a church that is being overseen by elders that are striving to, to hold one another up in a and live according to and, and shepherd according to the word of God, then he is going to take the simple things, simple town buildings, simple sound systems, simple signs, and simple social media accounts that publicize where we are, and he's going to do something more significant with those things than we could have imagined. God is in the business of taking simple, mundane things and making them much more remarkable than we could ever think or we could ever dream. And we, we, we see that here, and we ought to keep that in mind as we see their Spartan list that they take with them. And we see that in, in verse 8. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a staff only, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. Okay, let's go through these things very quickly. A staff only. Why would you, now, now this is not a staff like a, a, a group of people, like a cabinet. Bring your staff, your secretary, and your, you know, whatever. No, no, no. This is a stick. All right? What would you use a stick for? You're going to be walking. It's good to have a walking stick. If you've ever taken a child in the woods, you know that they can't move five feet without finding a stick. And if they don't have that stick, then they're not going to be able to make it across the, the trail. It's, it's essential. Apparently, the apostles were in the same situation. They probably argued about how many sticks they could carry, who had the best stick, etc., etc., if they were anything like my children. So they had a staff. Now, it's interesting that the staff was not only for walking and helping with that, this is actually for defense. This was how you would whack the critter that came out of the bushes to try to get you. This is how you looked more than helpless to anyone who might be wanting to rob you. So it had that purpose also. But they wouldn't have gotten very far with the apostles had they robbed them because they would have no bread. We'll see about why they had no bread here in a second. No bag. So they were, again, they were traveling very lightly. No money in their belt. These three things illustrate that they were going to have to depend on God to supply the rest. They were going to have to depend on God to supply the rest. So does this mean that if you, if you are um, hosting a missionary and that missionary rolls in to speak at the church or to, speak at, you know, to, to meet with you at the house, and they come in a car, and you see a backpack in the front seat next to them, that this is the, not the kind of missionary that you want to support, because obviously they are not trusting. And the fact that they drove here, you didn't have to go pick them up from their long walk through the wilderness, 
illustrates that they are relying too much on themselves and not upon God. No, not at all. Going back to what we began with, is this the call of every person to live in this particular way? No. In fact, what you see, and, and John the Baptist pops up next week, and, and we, there's a, a lot of points of continuity between uh, th- this text and the next text as far as the cost of following Christ. John the Baptist lived an even more simple life than the apostles are living. And Jesus doesn't say, well, if, you, if we want to be holy, and everyone knows how, uh, how, how holy John the Baptist with his, you know, his, his animal skins and his locusts were, you know, then we're probably going to have to live that way also. So he's not asking them to live opulently, but he certainly isn't, also, isn't, isn't asking them to live at the most destitute. What he's asking them to do is to get, have just enough to work, just enough to depend upon God for the rest. Just enough to work and just enough to depend on God for the rest. And it requires having a certain number of things, but also requires leaving a certain number of things behind. It's about finding that happy medium. For them in that time, it looked like this. But what it also meant, and, and what we see here in a second in, in verse 10, is that you'll, you're going to enter a house and to stay there. This meant that Jesus was anticipating they were going to be provided for. They didn't need to bring their provisions because they were going to have everything that they needed when they got there. So in some sense, you, you might even look at this and say that it is being more presumptuous then bringing money with you and bringing bed with you, bread with you to show up at someone's house and saying, I need money and I need bread. But that's precisely what Jesus was expecting to happen for the apostles, was that he was going to provide for them, that the Father was going to provide for them, for those that the, the, the Lord was working in their hearts and their homes, that the, when the apostles showed up, that they were going to have precisely what they needed. We see this happen so frequently where, I mean, whether it be, you know, Christ showing up and saying there's, a, there's going to be a, a, young, a young cult and you're going to bring that to me and I'm going to be able to ride in Jerusalem or talk to the guide to see if the upper room is available, it's not presumptuous for Christ to ordain from, from eternity past that circumstances and situations will be set up so that his people are provided for as they are doing his work. So, Again, it all comes down to the way that we look at these things. Jesus is not asking them to suffer because they're not bringing things. Suffering is coming, but it's not because they're not going to have what they need. He is asking them to rely on him that they will be provided for. What kind of, what, what else? To wear sandals, which again, there's plenty of groups. Uh, one, one of the, the major criticisms, and this is a fun rabbit hole we could dive down if we, we had more time, is that, that um, a lot of people say, well, what Jesus was doing was simply mimicking the, the mentality and the methods of the Stoics, another group, a, a group that had a certain philosophical paradigm uh, and, and of, of looking at the world and working in the world, this real uh, pared-down life, this real pared-down uh, teaching schedule and, or, or um, way of going about teaching. But it's interesting is that these people often went around barefoot. Here Jesus is saying, it's okay, wear sandals. So for a first century audience, they'd be hearing these things and saying, okay, well, they're taking a staff. Like that demonstrates that they're not totally defenseless. And they're wearing shoes. There's all these other teachers, all these other wandering teachers that don't wear shoes. So this may even come across to a first century audience as these people are kind of in the middle. We talked about before. 
They're in the middle. They're, they're not bringing some things, but they are bringing other things. This is Christ allowing his disciples to use what they had at their disposal, to take advantage of the resources that were available to them. And then he says, do not put on two tunics. But this goes back to the picture of you're, you're taking what you need, you'll have on your, your little undershirt, you'll wash it when you get there, you'll put it back on, you don't need to pack heavy, you need to be able to move light. What, 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 do, we, what do we take from all of this? This, this packing list, this, uh, the, the, these preliminary orders that Jesus gives. What it comes down to is that Jesus wants his people to depend upon him. He doesn't want them to cast off, askew all aspects of worldly comfort and pragmatism, things that could be useful, but he also doesn't want it to be all about that. He doesn't say, load up your caravan, bring everything that you need, but he also doesn't say, go basically one step above naked. It's, it's something in the middle, probably leaning more towards less than, but there's a purpose for that. Well, something we'll come back to later here is we have to remember who the apostles are at this point. This is, this is Mark chapter 6. They're still pretty uneducated. They're still pretty um, uninitiated. They still have a long way to go. So for them, at this point of the, the, you know, their freshman year, as it were, this is an opportunity and an exercise for them to learn a vital and important lesson about who Christ is and what he's preparing them to do. You certainly don't get the sense as we move through the Old Testament that they were having to slum it and rough it and by any stretch of the imagination. Jesus was not calling them to a, a life of being some sort of you know, desert you know, uh, hermit. He was calling them to live, but also to rely on him. This is not unlike what we're called to do. We've talked about this before. The entirety of Scripture bears this out, that some are called to have great means, some are called to have less means. Some are called to, to, to live in one place. Some are called to move around. We can't say, this person is a Christian that is living a godly life in this way. Therefore, I have to do exactly what he does. Or look at somebody who says, this person claims to be a Christian and they're living their life this way. I have to question them because they have more or they have less. What God has called us to do is to follow him, to be in community with one another, and to depend upon him whether we have plenty or whether we are in want. Both people are wholly dependent upon God, not only for their life, but how they use their life and their possessions, their means or lack thereof, to engage in ministry and to be a part of the body. Christ is asking his apostles to pack lightly, but he's giving them an, an amazing amount of, of resource in his presence, in his authority, and in clear commands about what's most important as they go about his ministry. So he, he tells them to, again, to enter houses in verse 10 and stay there until you leave town. Another opportunity for, um, uh, for, for them to demonstrate their obedience and their dependence upon him is to stay in one place, set up a, 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 basically a base of operations. Moving forward, we see in verse 11 something that might strike us as a little bit uh, different than this freely giving kind of mentality that we sometimes assume that Christ and the apostles have. It says in verse 11 that any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. So 
They're supposed to rely on God. They're supposed to pack lightly. They're supposed to depend upon having wonderful hospitality wherever they go. But if they go someplace and people are not receiving the message, they're supposed to go out and shake the dust off the soles of their feet. The apostles are to work quickly. The apostles are to work quickly. Now this, again, this might strike us as a bit counterintuitive, particularly when, when, when some of the stories that we hear that are, are most inspiring, that, that show the most devotion, are the person who is, sets up shop in one place and doesn't see fruit of their ministry of, as a missionary or as a, as a church planter or, or some other ministry, and they don't see fruit for 5, 10, 15 years, and then after 20 years, they, they see a glimmer of fruit, and we say, that devotion is remarkable. Well, it is remarkable, but again, that doesn't necessarily have to be the pattern for everybody. What we see happening here for this particular time, for this particular purpose, is that Christ sends his people out, and he says, go, start planting seeds, and if you don't see anything begin to spring up, go off and plant seeds in another field. So it's not dissimilar to the parable that he told already. He's, he's more concerned about sowing seeds at this point. He's more, more concerned about, about sending the word out, and then the, he, the, the growth and the nurturing and ultimately the harvest will come later. There are some who are called to simply sow seeds. There is the... There's debate whether the, the title of evangelist or, the, or the, if there is such thing as an office of evangelist as sometimes is presented in scripture or if that is something that is meant to be rolled into the office of pastor or elder or simply a gift that, that people have within the church. But in, in this situation, what we see Christ commanding his apostles to do is to go out and to simply share the gospel. And if it's received, then you still have to go somewhere else and if it is not received, he commands them to do something interesting. He says, if they don't listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. So certainly we've all done this to someone. When somebody's offended us, what do we do? We take our shoes off and we bang them together and say, there you have it. We don't do this, do we? This is not culturally what we do. But this is actually something that, that, first of all, people's feet are going to be dusty. Why are their feet going to be dusty? Their feet are dusty because they don't have big, fancy, waterproof, ankle-length snow boots. Well, it's because there's no snow there. They're wearing sandals or they're barefoot. So their feet are going to be filthy. This is why there was foot washings. This is why there was all this decorum and cultural things that they did. But their feet were dusty, and their feet were dusty from where they had been walking. So if they walk into a town... Their feet are going to be dusty from the dust of that town. That dust represents that town because that dust is literally that town. The dirt, the filth, everything they've picked up as they've been walking around the streets. And so as they are leaving that town in a symbolic gesture to say, I'm not going to bring any of you with me. I am not going to remember you fondly. I'm going to even take the dust that's on my feet. I'm going to get rid of that because it represents you. This is something we see in the Old Testament. The prophets did it. Uh, this is something that we see um, in, in the, uh, um, even in the law, this idea of, of, of basically cleaning yourself after you leave somewhere that is unclean. 
to illustrate that I can't bring any of your filth with me because I am called to be holy. Now, church, this might come across as a bit strong. And this might, again, come across as counterintuitive to the idea of, well, this person has rejected Christ, but I'm going to continue to pray for them. And, and it actually has, that becomes a bit of a, 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 a not a medal of honor, but, but a bit of a, a sign of prayerful devotion for a loved one, for a family member, for a neighbor, as we continue to pray for that person over and over again. But that's not necessarily what's in, in view here. This is not people who are saying, oh, that's nice for you, but I don't know about me. This is people who are rejecting the apostles, rejecting the news of the kingdom of God. So this is more akin to uh, not casting pearls before swine. This is more akin to not answering a fool according to his folly. This is more akin to the idea of, of, of casting someone out so that they may understand that they have rejected the goodness of the gospel. This is not a, a, a mandate for us today if we tell someone about Jesus and they say, no thanks, for us to say, well, you're written off, you're going to burn, I'm sorry. That's not what this is a command to do. Now, may that be the case. That, that may be the case. We have to, we have to remember that. But this is a particular situation in a particular time, a particular place where Christ is telling his apostles that what his desire for them to do is to plant seeds. And if, he plant, if they plant seeds, there is, a, there is the uh, expectation for them to illustrate that the rejection of these seeds will end in judgment. The rejection of this gospel seed will end in judgment. Ultimately, it's a call to repentance, and that's something that we're going to see here in verse, um, in verse 12. This, this is what their message was. So if someone says, no, I'm not going to repent, I'm content to live in my sin, then Christ wanted his apostles to have a demonstration that this is not a good thing, that rejecting repentance will yield judgment. And so that is why what is happening is happening. But similarly, I think it's important to remember what Jesus is having to do. Jesus, he's in Galilee, but he's sending his apostles into the surrounding area. Where is he sending his apostles? He's sending his apostles to Israel. God is sending people into Israel to tell them about him. He is sending people to Israelites to tell them about him. He's already done this before. He did this when they conquered the promised land the first time around, and it was filled with pagans. He did this by Joshua as they crossed the Jordan River and came in, and, and these people had ample opportunity to repent. In fact, what does Rahab say when she meets Joshua? We have heard about you and your God and what he has done, and we're greatly afraid of you. Do they repent? No, Rahab does, but not everyone does. And now what is Jesus having to do? Um, basically a millennia later, he is having to come along and reconquer the land that has already been conquered, but because of apostasy, because of spiritual harlotry, he is having to retake this land. Interestingly enough, the things that, that, that the apostles are, are, are given, 
are not unlike the same packing list that is given to the children of Israel as they are leaving Egypt to go into the promised land. Stand eating your staff. Don't have only, only have two tunics. Interestingly, in that situation, they also leave Egypt with all manner of plunder and spoil, but the apostles didn't, didn't get that. But we have to remember, wow, this is judgmental. This is the, why, why don't they just like, set up missions? Why don't they set up... The promised land has already been conquered. They've already had the opportunity. And the ones that are being preached to in this situation that are then getting the dust shaken off the apostles' feet if they don't repent are the very ones who came in to conquer the land in the first time, generation and generation and generation later, but they should have known better. They, they had already had every benefit and blessing. They already had the oracles that had been revealed from ages past, as the Apostle Paul writes about the Jewish people, that they should have known. And so when the apostles went to their, their brethren, went to their countrymen, and they did not receive it, they were to shake off their feet as a sign of judgment for them not receiving did this mean that they were done, that they were reprobate, that they wouldn't ever come to know? Not necessarily. We don't know where the seeds of this went. But this was meant to illustrate that there was strong implications for rejecting the gospel message. So the apostles are to pack lightly. The apostles are to work quickly. But thirdly, notice the apostles were to call for repentance. This is their message. We don't talk about repentance a whole lot because repentance... It's, first of all, it has a negative connotation because anybody who screams in a street corner talks about repentance. They may have some other methods that are questionable, but that's a good part of, of the, the lesson. Uh, repentance is necessary. Repentance is, is, a, is a gift. The Holy Spirit allows us to repent, as we talked about before, but repentance is necessary. You can't be saved unless you're saved from something, and the faith in that something that you're being saved to also requires knowing what you're being saved from. And repentance is the instrument by which we are saved. Repentance and faith. Repentance isn't talked about as, as, as much as faith is. So is it wrong to only talk about repentance? Absolutely. It's, only, it's wrong to only talk about repentance. Is it wrong to only talk about believing? Yes. It's, it's wrong to only talk about believing. That here we are, and what would they be believing in? Be, the, cross, the cross hasn't happened yet, so we have, to, we have to keep that in mind yet. They should be believing in Messiah, but just like the message of John the Baptist was a, was a baptism of repentance, was a preaching of repentance, the apostles are coming alongside that prophetic vein and telling people to prepare their hearts, humble themselves, reject how they have been living, reject how they haven't been dependent upon God, reject how they have been living for themselves, and anticipate what would be coming down the line. This was to be the apostles' message. And they went out, it says in verse 12, and they preached that men should repent. We need to make sure that repentance is part, not just of our gospel presentation, but of our daily gospel presentation to ourselves. Because we still have things to repent of. Certainly, if we are in Christ, we have repented that initial repentance of, I was living this way. And bare minimum, if we are a child and we are, we are unawares of, of the, the, the depravity that is in the world, I repent of, of wanting to do things my way. I mean, ultimately, that childlike repentance, we don't talk about childlike repentance, we talk about childlike faith, right? But that childlike repentance of, I trust, I, I want to do things my way. God, I want to do things your way. It's really what grows up to adult pride, adult arrogance. 
I want to do things my way. I mean, it sounds cute when a child says, God, I don't want to do things my way. And it needs to also sound profound when an adult says, I'm trying to do things my way. So it may, you know, pick one of the sin lists. It may manifest itself in all of those nasty, dirty, filthy sins that we don't like to talk about. But the core of it, repentance is, I'm doing things my way. God, I want to do things your way. And so that is the call for repentance. So similar to we focus on the packing list, but we neglect the fact that they're taking Jesus' authority with them, I think sometimes we look at what the apostles did and we didn't see the content of their message because it says in verse 13, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and teaching them. So consequently, we could maybe say, boy, the, the apostles... The forerunners of, the, of, of, of us, they were healing people. They were casting out demons. How do we heal people? How do we cast out demons? This needs to be our focus. We need to have schools and how this works. We need to read lots of books. We need to watch lots of YouTube videos. We need to make sure we have the right formula. We need to make sure that we put people in the right position. We need to make sure we buy the right oil. All of these things came after they preached a message of repentance. And all of these things were done to reinforce and to underline their message of repentance. So you could make the argument, and I think this is actually, you, you should make the argument, that the apostles' ministry was mirroring Christ's ministry. Did Jesus heal people simply for the sake of healing people? No, we've talked about this before. He healed people to reinforce the, the, the nature of the kingdom and the fruits of faith. Did Christ cast out demons just because he, this is the kind of thing that Jesus did? No. Christ cast out the demons that he did and the places that he did out of the people that he did to reinforce his message that this is the kind of things that accompanies the kingdom and this is the kind of thing that accompanies faith. The apostles were Christians in the sense that they were little Christ following him, following his path. They were doing what he was doing. Like Christ, the apostles' ministry reinforced their, method, their, their message. They preached a gospel of repentance and to authenticate that repentance actually mattered, they were given the authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal people. But ultimately, preaching was prioritized over healing and exorcism. And this illustrates, too, that what we do ought to reinforce, reiterate, and reflect what we say. And what we do ought to direct to what we say. So we don't have a lot of time, and so I'll just, just mention this briefly, that this, I think, reinforces the importance of ministry steering people back here. Our ministry ought to steer people back here. Our ministry ought, certainly ought to show the love of Christ in, in a very kind of blanket sense. It, it should be a cold cup of water. It should be a meal to the hungry. It should be a blanket to the cold, and the people in this room say Amen. It should be all of those things. It ought to be just simply showing the love of Christ. But it can't just stop there. It has to be that plus something. If it's as simple as saying, can I pray for you? Is it as simple as saying, I'd love to, I'd, I'd love to, to spend more time with you. Uh, this is where my small group meets. This is, I'd love to read the Bible with you. This is where my church meets. Our good works have to reflect, reiterate, and redirect people to our message. Because, as, as we'll read here in a few weeks, simply filling people's stomachs with miraculous bread 
can actually make them calcified against the good news because that is, becomes the more important thing. We, what we do ought to reinforce the reason why we're doing it matters more than what we're doing. And this is sometimes seen as, well, you know, you're only helping people because. And I would say to that, yes, I am only helping people because Christ told me to. My love for my, the, the brotherhood of man is an outpouring of, of the love that Christ showed to me, and I am only doing this as opposed to being selfish because Christ is in my life. Someone might say, well, I'm helping people because I just love people. Where does that love come from? To what end? Why don't you help one more person? Why? It, it begins all of those questions. So it's, a, it's a wonderful conversation, something we'll inevitably talk more about in the future. But do, do you see what I'm saying in church? Is that we have a reason for why we're helping people. Our, our worldview is complete in that we are helping people, not simply for the sake of helping people, but helping people for the sake of there being a significantly more vital help that is offered in Christ than any shoe, any blanket, any home, any food, any cup of water could bring. Those things are part and parcel of sharing the gospel, but they are not sharing the gospel. And we see that reflected in the apostles' ministry. They preached that men should repent, and they were performing these miracles. So the apostles are packed lightly. The apostles are to work quickly. The apostles are to call for repentance. And what they do effectively is they are, they are illustrating and Christ is commissioning them in what will effectively become this new great commission. They are doing what Israel was told to do on Mount Sinai that Israel never really did. Israel was okay at the military thing, but they didn't even do that super well. But what we see in Christ is in where Israel had failed prior to this moment, and every time it tried to take the promised land for God in one way or another, either militarily and certainly spiritually, now the apostles are doing it in a way that takes. The apostles are laying the groundwork for something that took. It took in Israel. The Jerusalem church became profound, and up until 70 AD, it was, amazing, it was significant. But then it spread outward, to, in, 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 reflecting the command that Christ gave of, of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the command at all times was, was never for just to have Jerusalem. It was always to go outward. And so what we see here in the Gospels, and, and this is illustrated in so many ways, is that Christ is doing what had already been prefigured in the Exodus, prefigured in the conquest of taking Israel and then going outward with his kingdom. And so that was started by the apostles, and we're continuing today. We're continuing this today. So I'll close with this. This is from 1 Corinthians. Because remember, this is like the apostles' freshman year. They're still starting out. They don't have all the knowledge. They don't, certainly don't understand the, the cross, let alone the substitutionary uh, penal atonement that Christ is going to suffer. But the apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, and by extension to us, for consider your calling, brothers, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, 
and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're sent out. It probably is with more than a staff, probably is with more than one tunic, but we have the authority of the risen Christ. We have the authority to go with the weak, with the base, with the foolish, and accomplish great things. I think we've seen that, but we need to pray that that continues, that we don't, we don't, we, we don't pray for the wise, we don't pray for the strong, we don't pray for, for that which is not despised, but we pray that God uses the things that he has given us to accomplish the great things that he's already accomplished and has promised to continue to accomplish. We see a reflection of that in the table, church. It's so simple, it's so small. It's a tiny little table with little pieces of cracker and little cups of really bottom shelf wine and, uh, and, and market basket brand grape juice. These are simple things small things, but something profound happens when we take them. Something amazing happens when we take them. They don't miraculously turn into top shelf wine, and they certainly don't turn into the physical blood of Christ. But what does happen is that Christ has promised that he will be present with us. And so consequently, as we talked about, when his Holy Spirit is in us, we're able to do amazing things. When he is present with us, our ministry is sanctified and our lives are sanctified in a way that, that, that we can't even fathom. So the, the, the elements themselves are simple, but the significance of the elements is profound. So as we receive them, as we receive this supper today, Christ is present with us by faith and he is with us. And, and, and this, this memorial meal reminds us this. He is with us as we go from this place to do whatever we are called to do today. Wherever we're called to go, wherever we're called to talk to, whatever prayers we pray, whatever words we say, Christ is present with us in this meal. Gives us that, reminds us of that as we go out from this place. So I'll pray. John will come up and lead us in a song. Come and receive the elements and, uh, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that um, there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. We don't have to have more education than our neighbors to share the gospel with them. We don't have to have more wealth than our family members to live lives uh, that are demonstrative of the power of your spirit and the new birth but we simply need you. We thank you that you have blessed us with material things. We thank you for the countless blessings. And we, we do ask that we do not focus on what we don't have, but we rejoice and praise you for what we do have and how you will use those things mightily in spite of them or with them in order to advance your kingdom for the good of your people and for your glory. So be glorified now as we come and receive these elements, as we take the supper, 
be glorified as we, as we take these simple things, but we do something remarkable and profound with them because you have promised that you will do it as we receive them in faith. We ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen.